Thank you. People talk about the good old days, and from a biblical perspective, you have to go back pretty far. Okay. Thank you. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. <clears throat> I'm sorry, verse 4. Genesis 2, 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth. And there was no man to cultivate the ground, but a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. The bdellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Thank you. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that um, that we not fall in danger of thinking that we can live according to our own wisdom. Um, Lord, if there's anything that we're going to learn from Genesis chapter 2, Lord, I ask that you would ask us to ask a question. Why was it perfect? Lord, I know that you created all good things. And there was a time in which 
your creation and your humanity, which you created in your image and likeness, walked accordingly. And we long for those days because we clearly do not see that now. We walked according to our own patterns and our own wisdom and our own perspectives. There's a lack of dependence upon you or even a concern of you. It's not only made its way within our society, but now our churches. So please sanctify your church and your people. Well, let us long as we see and peer through this window of what it once was. Lord, let us learn and be convicted of what you called humanity to walk in. In Jesus' name, amen. One cannot help it, as you read this, ask the question, what in the world happened? I mean, I just addressed the SBC sexual abuse report, and we've just come out of a week trying to grapple with the mindset or the problems of the shootings in Texas. Seems like when we finish a war, it only begins the, this pattern for the next one. If you don't have a pulse, then you might not find yourself asking the question, what in the world has changed? But everyone knows, just as the ocean waves beat against the shoreline, so does the wickedness of humanity beat against our families, our workplaces, our schools, and churches, and one not can help long for such perfection. I live in an interesting time, and I live in a time where there's so many resources, I don't think there's been any other generation that has had so much available to them and yet be utterly lost. The science that we have gained has significantly changed our comforts and our opportunities and like anything before. The medical field has been able to preserve life and to be able to answer things that once were like unstoppable. I mean, even in our own country, we, well, a hundred years ago, had a time where we would ship lepers off because we had no idea how to resolve that issue. I was in Dallas, and I remember speaking with a man who worked at Baylor Hospital, and he would do surgery within the womb and heal or do surgery on the baby within the, within the womb. That, that still boggles my mind. So whether it be the sciences, whether it be the medical our, transformation, our transportation has been, become more efficient or quicker. Our homes are bigger. Our water is cleaner. We are bombarded with more information than we ever have had before. And we have more gadgets to entertain the time that we have free so as to fill up our time with desires of whatever we want to do, the physical separations that we might have had once before between family members has been dissolved in part because now I can speak with Brandon and Lisa who are in Estonia, which takes gobs amount of time to get over there just even by a plane can be now narrowed down just by a video. Like so, We live in a time, what am I trying to say here? 
We live in a time that has more resources, more stuff than ever before. But we are still just as utterly lost and confused as every generation before us. Maybe even more so. I don't know if you know this. I'm speaking with pastors. But you would think with all the resources that we have that might lead to our society becoming emotionally, physically better. Pastors are trying to strive to find counselors. You know, they're backlogged at least six months. And that's just to deal with the issues that we have in our churches. Not to discuss those which exist within our schools. Even our own Richland School District has acknowledged that our youth are struggling with depression and anxiety. Insecurity. There's this perception that they have a whole bunch of friends. They don't. There's so much stuff. And yet with all that stuff, we're utterly lost. Just as every generation. I can't think of another generation which has had more stuff and yet still is utterly lost. What am I saying? There's a verse in Genesis chapter 2 which is often just glazed over and not recognized for its significance. And it's Genesis 2 verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They had utterly nothing and were content. Why? And we live in a world that has an entirely different perceived reality. Bigger house that means that you're something and because you're something that must mean you're content or happy. You drive that car, we make the assumptions things must be good. But we all know that behind the scenes, even in our society, it struggles. And it doesn't match up with what we're presented here in Genesis chapter 2. The question I have is why? What is causing the, the extreme, almost opposite perspectives? Where one society can have everything and yet be discontent, yet you have the other who are literally naked and yet unashamed. Children, you're in here. If you can learn this lesson, it'll change the way you live your life. Because what the author is trying to show us is that humanity has been created unique. And it had been created with this objective to find its meaning within its creator and to live utterly dependent upon the one who formed them. If you can learn that, you'll understand what the words on this building mean. Reliance. And that God created each and every single one of us to utterly live fully dependent upon him. And so that's all I'm going to try to do and show as the writer has labored to reveal in chapter 2 this reality that God has created humanity to depend upon Him. We looked at this last week. The theme is obvious. 
And that in chapter 1, Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The actor, the main subject of Genesis chapter 1 is not humanity, nor is it creation. The main actor in which the, the author is trying to get you and I to consider is the one who creates all things and sustains all things, separates all things, designates all things, which is God. And this is like a drumbeat through all of chapter 1. Creation is not the main focus. God is. And when you get to Genesis chapter 2, Verse 4, after laboring for almost a chapter and three verses, the author wants to stop, flash back, and restate the whole thing again so that you might not miss who the main subject of all this is, which is God. And when we do this in chapter 2, you recognize once again that as the author pulls back and reminds who humanity is, what God has made mankind to do. Mankind was created to depend on God, to provide Him with whatever is good, even our closest relationships. And if you just would hear this out, it will change the way, it should impact the way you live your life. Not just children, but adults. Because God has been created, God has created humanity to live utterly dependent upon Him. You can notice this in this section. I think I counted six emphasis. As you go through it, it's like this drumbeat. Do you realize who you are and who you're supposed to depend upon? The first one actually has nothing to do, so there's seven, with man. Look at verse four. You get this, this theme that this whole creation account is not about humanities coming into the earth, but how God is over all things. He's the subject. This is the account of the heavens and the earth. When they were created, in the day the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. And for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. The author pulls back to summarize and readdress the significance of man within his creation. The author wants us to recognize it had not rained. But why had it not rained? God did not send the rain. God is not just creator over his creation, but he sustains within his creation. Why did it rain today? Because God made it rain today. He's the subject. The meteorologist might look at the wind patterns, but we know as revealed in scriptures that he sustains even the seasons of the earth's cycle. And he directs the winds where he wishes. The subject is like, put before you to recognize why does it not rain? And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, you'll see this. Israel in one period does not experience rain for three years. Why? Because God held back the rain. But even at the beginning of creation, why did it not rain? Because the main actor did not want it to rain. And there was no man to cultivate the ground. 
So that in verse 7, you have the first emphasis of why man must be utterly dependent upon God. One, man was created to depend on God for its very being. Look at verse 7 with me. The Lord God formed, needing a cultivator for his creation. The Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. Man recognizes the reason why it exists is because God has made him. Why do you exist? Even the psalmist will say that he knits together a person within the womb. And so, I, I don't know, when I was a kid, I remember sitting in my room thinking, why do I exist? What an odd question. You can touch and taste and know you exist, but the fundamental question, why? Because the world could exist without me just fine. Why do I exist? In one verse, the writer reminds us you exist because God made you. Finding that man finds its very existence being made by God. This theme is going to be throughout the whole passage. It's not just about marriage. It's this repetitive emphasis, stressing that man should be utterly dependent upon God, not for his being, but also for his food. Look at, look at verses 8 and 9. This is the second emphasis. The Lord God planted a garden towards the east in the Eden. And there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life, also in the midst of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So not only did man find itself being created because of God, it depends upon God for its existence, but it also depends upon God for its very food. In fact, this is exactly what Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, right? Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily food. Humanity is dependent upon God for its existence, but it is also dependent upon God to be sustained. Isn't it interesting that, I call it, uh, my wife knows, if I don't eat lunch, I get angry or internally frustrated. Like my body knows it's unable to sustain itself. I have to live dependent upon a source for my very being. God doesn't, but I do. And therefore, because God wants me to know that I'm not just dependent upon Him, He provided the food to sustain me every day. Some of us are going to go eat lunch today, and some of us are going to eat dinner. I hope all of us. But why do you pray before the meal? Because it's an exercise of showing whom we depend upon to sustain us. He's given us food. And we live in a society who has had more food than every other 
society before us. And yet we find ourselves still anxious and depressed, unwilling to recognize why it even sits there. So the first emphasis is that humanity finds its existence because God has made us. Two, he sustains us by giving us food. Three, for Adam, Eve, he gave them a place. We'll read all of it. But he created a garden, verse 8. But then look at how detailed the writer goes on to say, verses 10 through 14, that he designated a place for them in the garden to work. And a river flowed from out of the Eden to water the garden. And from there it divided and became four rivers. There was gold in it, verse 12. The name of the second river in verse 13 was Gihon. You can go there and you can find it. And it had a place of dwelling. So, like, this is helpful for me. Like, why was, why was I born in Spokane? Right? Is God that serious about where he places people. Adam and Eve, we can see this. Not only did he create their existence, but the means by which to sustain them, and he appointed the place where they were going to live. Is it possible he's done that still? It's supposed, the Genesis account about creation does, yes, indeed teach us about how it began, but it also teaches us the significance of humanity, where they dwell. Even more than that, not only does the creation of teach us about our existence, about how we're sustained by God, where we find our place, but then it also defines for us our purpose. Oh man, did not like this one. Growing up as a kid, dad had this rule. He lived on a farm, two hours of work, right? Lived on a farm, you have to give two hours of work a day. Well, where did, where did this idea of work come from? Well, 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it, cultivate it to, and keep it, to serve and work. And So in one sense, like we're not like God who can create things out of existence. God has pride or He is, enjoys His creation and He has appointed within His creation a man to work it. Cultivate it, right? Sometimes we treat this world like it's meant to comfort us and only that. Oh, work, is, work is ingrained into our very nature that it is good for man to work. In fact, a man when he does not work, I remember when I moved from Spokane to down to Texas, I was without a job for two months, longest two months of my life. It's idleness. Eats away at the mind. Why? Because we're not just supposed. We're not created just to sit. So not only does he, God is like, can you see it? Like after chapter two, who's the main actor? It's gone. He's determining his existence. He's determining um, how he will be sustained. He's determining the place. He's determining what he will do work. Not only that, he's determining them for them what is and where you will gain true wisdom. Look at this. Verses 16 and 17. The Lord commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat. 
but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil ye shall not eat. And we're going to talk about the, this tree next week. For in that day that you eat from it, you will surely die. There's a tree which you can eat, but there's a tree which you cannot eat. And God provides for humanity wisdom. And yes, there is a wisdom that you can eat of which will lead to death. But if you lean upon my wisdom, it leads to life. Who's the main actor? Who is man being asked upon in chapter 2 of Genesis to live fully dependent upon for their existence, for their being, for their place, for their purpose, even for their wisdom? This is driving the bead of the whole passage that when you get to the six emphasis, look at what happens. Verse 18, and then God said, it is not good. For the first time in a chapter and a half, everything that God does does is good. And he looks at man, the way that he has been formed. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Stop for their second. If we have been reading it right, contemplatively, understanding the rhythm of the chapter, the reader must ask, well, who will solve this problem? God up to this point has given everything that the man must need to do well. And when there is something that's not good in the situation of the man... Who's going to solve this problem? Not man, but God. Why? Because man lives fully dependent upon God to even answer the bad things in their life. The things that which are not good. And so he says, I will make for him a helper. If you give me a moment, I'd like to just stress what that term means. A helper. Right. Um, sometimes the term has been used, and often we even use it in our own context. To ask for help is to acknowledge your weaker position, and you're asking someone of greater strength to fulfill that which you are weak in. That's how we then press on this idea when God is about to create woman. And and I think that does an injustice towards what God is intending in making a helper, right? So the common sense in which we use it is like for my children who are, yay, tall, and the milk that's on the top shelf of the refrigerator, they are weak in height, so they ask one who is strong in height, and so therefore they need help. And if that takes the pattern by which we perceive the context, it shapes the way that we even view our relationships between men and women. And that trajectory, I think, is not good. If we recognize within Scripture, helper means something even much more because God Himself designates Himself as a helper. He, he is, yes, stronger, but He, he aids the individual. Uh, let, me, let me just give you an example. So it's rather Trying to articulate without context. For example, God calls himself as a helper. Look at Deuteronomy 33, 29. Lord is called Israel's helper. 
Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you. People saved by the Lord, who is the shield are of, our, of your help and the sword of your majesty. So your enemies will cringe before you and you will be tread upon their high places. Psalm 146.5 How blessed is he who, whose help is in God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. When Israel trusted in the Lord and lived dependent upon him, he was a helper, helper to them that which they became more together than if they were separated. They complemented each other. The strength of the Lord became Israel's strength and those two relationships became a light to the nation. It's not good that man be alone. And recognizing this, he desired to make a helper for him. To complement him and her. And you'll see that when Adam sees the woman, he does not perceive her in a weaker position, but rather as equal with him. And he gives her the same honor that he would give himself in light of how God has created him. So, so up to this point, what we have seen, yes, God, man is dependent upon God for his existence, for his food, for his his place, his for his purpose, and where wisdom comes from, and yes, even our closest relationships. And when God sees that it's not good, look what, how he does. This is in a more extensive emphasis here written by the author to make this point. Read with me at verse 19. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, and every bird of the sky, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whenever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man, like, who's the subject? Be careful. It's still God. It's not man. Who's going to solve the problem? The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was no there was not found a helper suitable for him. Who's going to solve the problem? You know. Look at verse 21. So the Lord caused. Look at the layering. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And Adam slept. And then he took, who is the he, God, took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh of that place, at that place. And the Lord gone, fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Like, you can't miss it. And maybe I'm overemphasizing it to stress the point. Like, man is utterly finding itself created to live utterly dependent upon God. Why was the garden perfect? I think it's the point. If you think, maybe I'm in danger of thinking this, if you think the world was perfect because creation was perfect, no, man, it was perfect before what God, man was doing. Literally living, utterly dependent upon God for every need that they had, even their closest relationships. When Adam sees the woman, look what he says. The man said, this is now bone of my bone. 
and flesh of my flesh. She will be called, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. With great delight, he sees who this woman is and he uses language which we often demonstrate in our own marriage ceremonies. And he says, this woman is so unique, I am committing myself loyally to her. He uses uh, loyalty language, which we see elsewhere throughout Scripture. She's so unique, I am committing my whole being to her. It's the first emphasis of marriage. In fact, if you were to read elsewhere, I'll just give you two examples of this. Jacob and Laban. Well, we'll read in Genesis here, probably about five months. Um, J- Laban was hiring Jacob, and Jacob tries to get away, take his family off. And Laban catches up with him, and he's frustrated that Jacob is leaving. And in Genesis 29, 14, Laban uses this similar language which Adam uses here. Genesis 29, 14, Laban said to Jacob, him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. In Gideon's situation, remember Gideon faced five kings, and one nation of Israel did not get invited to fight. And after hearing of the success of Gideon, this nation that was not invited was upset with Gideon. In Judges 9, 2, they use the same language here. Speak now in hearing of all leaders of Shechem, which is better for you that 70 men or all the sons of Jerubbabel rule over you, or that one man rule over you. Also remember that I am, this is this nation speaking, I am your bone and your flesh. What is Adam saying here in Genesis chapter 2? Like the closest relationships that God has provided to us, marriage. Adam responds with incredible loyalty to that relationship. Why? Because God has given us what we need. And the marriage becomes the unique gift of God which ought to preserve and out of submission and obedience he submits to that institution. And he says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his family. There's a sense, we know even with our own children, there's a point in which they become adults and the loyalty that they once was expected from them as their parents has been resolved or removed. And the expectation would be that that new union, that new commitment might take place in a marriage. And they shall become one flesh. Meaning, totally committed together to live life, complementing one another for the glory of God. What is Genesis 2 all about? It ends with, you see it now, Genesis 2, verse 25. And the man, you could translate it, husband, I think, to be fair, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Beth and I got married We had absolutely nothing. Well, we had this 400 square foot house. And we were happy. Adam and Eve had less. We know. I don't have the time to 
to go through, but poverty within the scriptures is this idea of shame. Right? The poor even exists within this city. You don't have something, you're nothing. But Adam and Eve had everything. And they were unashamed. Why? Everything they utterly ever needed could be fulfilled in the one who created them. And if they needed clothes, who would solve that problem? God. Why was it a perfect world? Because man was fulfilling what it was created to do. Live utterly dependent upon God. So let's be clear. Point two. This is a timeless truth. Yes, we know in the next chapter, things will fail. And man will cease living dependent upon God and seek wisdom outside the wisdom of God. But as scriptures go on to say, that even after the fall, whether you are a child or whether you are an adult, you have been created to depend upon God for everything. Wisdom. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. And He will make your path straight. You want to understand what the purpose of life might be? Well, it starts with depending upon God for everything. And that includes even in a fallen world, even for protection. And Psalms 37 continues teaching this timeless expectation that man live dependent upon God for everything, even in a perverted world. Psalm 37, 1 through 5. Do not fret because of evildoers. Good words for today. Be not envious towards wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord. Do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. Same truth applies in Christ, even for food. I mean, this should sound familiar, right? Like in the in the times that we find ourselves in, abuses, wickedness, grotesque. Events. Like, what is a man supposed to do? <laughs> We've enacted a lot of policies and procedures. And we should. But we, why is it we as a society and a world no longer cries out to the Lord as it was designed to do? Matthew 6, verse 25 through 30. When it comes to our needs, 
For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look, the birds of the air, they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, near your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say, do you then not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these? What is he saying? Man has been made to be utterly dependent upon God. But if God is so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? It's a timeless truth. You and I, every human being on this earth, has been created to find its utter dependence upon God for everything. That's why it was perfect. And we don't. We sit before a table, sing songs for specific reasons. For we know, if left to ourselves, we could not acquire our own salvation. The gospel is significant because even there, if there is to be salvation given by God, it would be, have to be God who grants it. And for it to be, this makes sense in my mind, as scripture unfolds, to be in line with the character of God, man must be utterly dependent upon him in order to enjoy his salvation. This is why we read in Romans 10. We've gone through Romans. The scriptures say, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. We rest not in our own efforts, but in God's effort. Term it wasn't good that man remain a sinner and condemned. For there is no distinction whether you're a Jew or a Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever depends upon Him utterly find what He needs. In that we find our purpose. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. What is faith? Faith, faith is utterly depending upon Him. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Verse 10, once you hear it, and in the light of the salvation, we hear and we know we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, cultivation, 
service for work, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Who's the main subject? It's God. We find our existence in Him. We have found what we need from Him, whether it be food or salvation. We recognize why we exist in this place. It is from Him we gain our wisdom and our closest relationships, marriage, and even more than that, Jesus Christ Himself has given us salvation. This is why Paul can write in his introduction to Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. A righteous man shall live by faith. You know why this world is insecure and depressed? Many issues, many issues, sin. Trying to find something to base their life upon other than trusting in the one whom you've been created to depend upon. For everything. We come to the table and as Christians, we know those who participate in the table have one confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, utterly living, dependent upon Him for their salvation, trusting themselves to Him. Two, did you hear me, children? If you have not expressed that faith in baptism, through baptism, I'd ask you not to participate in adults as well. It is the expression of that faith towards the beloved that we all know whom we have found our dependence upon which is in Christ. So those who enjoy the table are for those who have expressed their dependence upon Christ for their salvation and expressed that in faith through baptism. But remember that God created us to be utterly dependent upon Him for everything. I don't know where you're at, but I imagine there's something you probably have been trusting in other than God. It'd be a good time this morning to reflect on that as it's being handed out to us, confess our sin and give it to the Lord. And respond together, hold the elements, and we'll take them together. And trusting ourselves to live dependently upon Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord, I think I need